Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This will certainly have an adult theme and might well contain strong scenes of sex or violence, which could be quite graphic. It may also contain some very explicit language, which will frequently mean sexual swear words. What do you want to say? Um... <laughs> chart music. <laughs> chart music. You pop craze youngsters, and welcome to part three of episode 73 of Chart Music, which finds us, that is to say, Simon Price, Sarah B, and me, Al Needham, stuck in the middle of an episode of Top of the Pops, dated March the 4th, 1993. And there is absolutely no opportunity for a fanny about, so let us rejoin the episode in progress. All of that is that's Mark's coming on top of the pops. Now we were due to have Sway playing live on the show tonight, but unfortunately Brett is not feeling too well. Brett, what's the matter? Um, I think my voice just deserves me. I've been singing too violently. Hey, listen, get well soon. We wish you all the very best. Here's the video, though. New entry number seven, Animal Nitrate. We cut to a tight shot of Franklin on an empty stage who tells us that the next act was supposed to be here in the studio tonight but are not. And as the camera pulls back, we see a very pouty young man with his arms <laughs> tightly folded looking out upon the kids with barely concealed contempt. Brett Anderson. Franklin asks him why his band aren't playing and he says, I think my voice has deserted me. I've been singing too violently. <laughs> Fucking hell. This has got serious come to the front of assembly and explain how you've let the school down vibes, hasn't it? Who's made him do this and why? I can only assume that the decision was made quite late in the day because mm. those curtains that we see on the stage, those sort of um, ruched... Uh, dark red silk drapes are mm. from the animal nitrate video and oh yeah yeah and so so clearly they were planning to recreate their little world you know their sort of video world mm. on the top of the pop stage it was you know they, they were going to make it their their domain and it was all set up ready to go oh. yeah i mean uh in terms of why it might have happened well, uh, I did look at their tour dates and it turned out that they had just finished touring uh, their debut album um, mm. about three days earlier in Cambridge. And 
far be it from me to speculate as to you know what kind of celebrating they might have done at the end of that tour but that might possibly have something to do with the Mm. fact that brett's voice is apparently fucked (laughs) hey listen get well soon says franklin and gently shoves him out of shot and introduces the video to animal nitrate by suede Formed in London in 1989 by Justine Frischman, her boyfriend Brett Anderson and Matt Osman, Suede started playing covers until they realised that neither of them were much cop on guitar. And in October of 1989, they placed an advert in the NME which read, Young guitar player needed for London-based band Smiths, Commotions, Boer, Pet Shop Boys, No Musos, Some Things Are More Important Than Abilitaire, <laughs> Call Brett, which led to them being joined by Bernard Butler. After a series of gigs with a drum machine in late 1989, they sent off a demo to Gary Crowley, who was presenting a show called Demo Clash on Greater London Radio, and their song Wonderful Sometimes won five weeks in a row, leading them to sign a deal with the Brighton-based independent label RML and the song appearing on a compilation cassette. But a debut double A side single was scrapped when the band didn't like it, and almost all of the 500 copies were destroyed. After being let down by the drum machine one gig too many, they finally put an advert in the enemy for a drummer and were astonished to get a reply from Mike Joyce, who'd been looking to get back into the game after the Smiths split up, but both parties realised it'd be a bad idea and they went for Simon Gilbert on the recommendation of their manager at the time, Ricky Gervais. After Frischman and Anderson split up and the former was thrown out of the band after she started going out with Damon Alban and turned up late for a rehearsal because she'd been at a blur video shoot, they began 1992 being touted about as the best unsigned band in the country. Nude Records, a London independent, got in first with a two-single deal and a week before the first one came out, The Drowners, they were on the cover of Melody Maker billed as the best new band in Britain, which helped get the single up to number 49 in May of that year. This single, their third, is the follow-up to Metal Mickey, which got to number 17 in September of 1992. It's also the third cut from their debut LP, Suede, which comes out at the end of the month. And this week, it's smashed into the charts at number seven, this week's highest new entry. Oh, fucking hell. Where where do we begin, chaps? <laughs> I just think this is where the episode begins. Yeah, this yeah. is when it yes. gets exciting. My heart skipped, I'll be honest, when I saw Brett standing there in this episode immediately yeah. i thought that is a pop star i mean fucking mm. hell just it, it looks like he's going to go into a full rigs bear of the kids <laughs> which would have been fucking men my god yes he's totally in character isn't he it's like just for that very brief moment and he's yeah. contorting himself like an angle poise lamp in leather yes it's, it's really <laughs> funny as well because he has like a poker straight posture in mm. real life he's just cocked everything to make his mm. body into an s shape for sway Yes. And it's like, <laughs> fucking hell, 
Brett, whatever's happened to your throat is nothing compared to what's happening to your vertebra. (laughs) (laughs) Suede are one of our bands. And when you see one of our bands on a top of the pop stage, their expression and the look on their face is usually, what the fuck am I doing here? But with Brett Anderson, it's, what the fuck are you doing here? (laughs) (laughs) You, the presenter, you, the kids, you, the camera crew, what are you doing here looking at me? He's giving uh, Mark Franklin serious side-eye, isn't he? Oh, yes. Yeah, basically almost rolling his eyes, like, you know, what the fuck? Yeah, this this is the kind of shit you've got to do when you're a fucking massive band like we are. (laughs) I mean, amazingly, Suede meant nothing to me at the time, bar a few clips of their videos on the chart show on a Saturday morning, and, you know, they'd come on for ten seconds, and I'd go, oh, this is interesting, but, you know, obviously being a, you know, a a hip-hop boy, not interested enough to make me investigate them more, and shamefully, this lot are a complete black hole to me. Oh, well. I was interested to see what your take was going to be, Al, Mm. because I kind of predicted 60-40 that you were going to fucking hate them. No, not at all. It was just like, all right, is this what that lot are getting up to now? Okay, it's it's an advance on fucking Ned's Atomic Dustbin and the Wonder stuff. Right. That lot meaning kind of indie rock fans yes. or whatever. Yeah, right, okay. Yeah, it was, it was like, oh, okay, so we're, uh, we're being inspired, again, being inspired by the early 70s, but the good early 70s, you know, Bowie and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we said, didn't we, that um, 1993 was kind of a fallow year, and I think Suede could only have manifested in one of those, a kind of liminal space between scenes. Mm. Um, mm. And they've, they've said uh, that they are a band about the liminal spaces. Liminal space rock. <laughs> Brett is pretty much from one of those, like growing up in a council house between a woodland and a tip. <laughs> it's like that's perfect breath of the dumb exactly if they were a time of day they'd be gloaming <laughs> if they were a body part they'd be a dip in a clavicle <laughs> but that doesn't mean that they're in any way undefined like it's startling from this video and also just from that couple of seconds of Brett looking like a vampire bat that's kind of <laughs> accidentally uh, hung himself on a washing line is just trying to style it out um <laughs> It's startling how clearly swayed they are right away. Mm, mm. And the strength and the confidence of the aesthetic that they are presenting is so striking. It's a bit messy and it's slightly rough around the edges, but fucking hell. Mm. You just see it, don't you? You go, fucking hell. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So, Simon, you were at Melody Maker at the time. Melody Maker putting them on the cover saying, here's the the best new band in Britain. Did you have a hand in that? Um, Yeah, I was there um, quite a long time before that. In fact, uh, my backstory with Suede goes way beyond them being Suede, even. Right. There there are so many weird coincidences, Okay, First of all, Brett was born four days after me. Right. He grew up in Haywards Heath. Um, I went for two years to a school that was just outside Haywards Heath. Um, Right. We then both ended up at UCL, University College London, at the same time. And I remember him knocking about, right? And I only realised it was him in hindsight. I did a lot of work at the student union, UCL union, uh, because we had a mobile disco set up. And we used to make a bit of money for ourselves and for the union by allowing the mobile disco to be hired out to sometimes to sort of private outsiders, hotels and so on. Uh. And sometimes to the departments of 
of the university and various societies. Right. We had it all on a, a massive trolley stolen from Euston Station, um, <laughs> the whole setup. And, and one time uh, we were hired and I was hired to do it by the architecture department. And right. I think either Justine or Brett, I think it might have been Justine, was uh, a student at the architecture department. And I, I went along there and I set up in the sort of common room there. And uh, I remember this couple and the guy had this bright yellow duffel coat coming up to me and just hassling me for David Bowie all night. I really vividly remember that. And they were pissing me off a little bit, actually. You know what I mean? Um, But... It, it was only afterwards I read an interview where Brett was talking about hanging around UCL in this bright yellow duffel coat. I thought, fucking hell, <laughs> it was him all along. At least he didn't ask you for any Oasis song. <laughs> yeah, probably because they, they, they weren't didn't around exist yet. Yeah, exactly. No. So by the time I got to Melody Maker, when Suede sort of changed from being shitty Bull and Gate also rans to being Suede, mm. I was editing a section in the paper called Preview, which was stuff about film and tv and comics and all that which i think i mentioned mm. earlier a colleague of mine ian watson was running the section called advance uh, confusingly similar kind of names mm-hmm. and advance was where we wrote about brand new bands right and he handed me a cassette tape one day and said to me simon i think you're going to like this Ooh. and it was a suede <laughs> demo tape four tracks on it which included the Drowners and Metal Mickey and a couple of the B-sides. So basically their first two singles. And I played it and the recording wasn't great quality, but the fucking songs, man, they were so good. Mm. It was one of those things, you get a demo tape and I was just playing that over and over more than I was playing my actual record collection. Yeah, um, It was very Bowie, very Smiths, but I was in the market for a bit of that. So this, this was good editing, by the way, by Ian Watson. He could have taken it himself. He could have thought, well, this band's obviously going to be huge. I'm going to do it. But yeah. he, he knew that it was right up my street and, and he gave it to oh, me bless him yeah I went to a rehearsal studio in Hackney and, and I met them and uh, I interviewed them I gave them their first bit of coverage in the sort of Ooh. mainstream weekly music press under the headline Pigskin Heads um, <laughs> and the thing with it is Steve Sutherland the assistant editor of Melody Maker then jumped on board really quickly and he re-interviewed them soon afterwards oh. and yeah and he slapped them on the front cover of Melody Maker with the infamous headline the best new band in Britain and I feel like I'm being fucking written out of history and also gaslit mm. by the fact that everybody thinks that was their first cover. no let's set the record straight right here yeah on an old laptop I've got the JPEG of that original pigskin heads piece in which i talk about the fact that they all dress in charity shop clothes and they've got kind of brian ferry hairstyles and just this really distinct aesthetic this Mm. sort of very 1970s aesthetic that nobody had at the time but even the official suede biography love and poison by david barnett which i had a hand in i was actually slated to co-write that and i actually did a bit of preliminary work on it and i sort of ducked i backed out in the end but even that book just skims over the the fact that i wrote the first interviews oh jesus christ the thing with the best new band in britain which is a really bold thing to say. And I, I love the fact that Melody Maker did that. But we kind of bottled it. I don't know if you've seen that front cover, mm. but it's a right fucking patchwork. Suede at the top of the cover, and it says the best new band in Britain. But we hedged our bets by also having, and this is from memory because I haven't seen it in a while, but Thousand Yard Stare and EMF also right. on the cover. Oh. And it's like, if, if you're going to say an unknown band, 
is the best new band in Britain. Fucking say it. Yeah. Fucking just put a picture of them and that headline yeah. and dare the world to deal with that. Mm. Don't say, oh, but never mind, you might like EMF or, you know, that kind of fucked me off. Yeah, that was the fundamental difference between Melody Maker and The Enemy. The Enemy would put up one massive image for their cover uh, with a little bit of something on the side, whereas Melody Maker would just seemingly throw everything at the cover. And sorry, mate, but The Enemy's covers always look better. No, no, you're right. Um, our front cover design wasn't great, and I, I apologise if any of my colleagues in the art department are listening, but they weren't that great. The thing that Enemy had in its favour, though, was that they never really had to break new bands. Mm. That was our job. Yeah. So by the time Enemy put somebody on the cover, they are already big enough to carry a front cover. Yeah. So Enemy would never have really had that that dilemma. Mm. Sometimes they would go out on a limb and put fucking things like Terrace. Do you remember them? Mm. On the front mm. cover. The Kingmaker. Yeah, but mostly um, our job was to be the sort of talent scouts, the sort of A&R yeah. department of IPC. Mm. And our strapline became Tomorrow's Music Today after a while because basically you've got two magazines that are very similar in the same building under the same publishing house, one floor above or below each other, sharing the same fucking ad department mm. and everything. So we had to differentiate ourselves somehow. Just from a publishing point of view, it made no sense for IPC to have those two papers mm. so we had to kind of try and put some clear water between us and enemy yeah. so we became the paper that discovered bands and so it was with suede we put ourselves out on a limb not far enough out on a limb as far as i'm concerned but we did it and then by the time enemy did it's like well you know brett is really famous by now but anyway the video because that's what we get. And uh, yeah, it's absolutely sodden with 90s video cliches that aren't actually cliches yet in 1993. We get an interior of ruched velvet curtains with a carpet very similar to the one in The Shining mm. with clips of the rest of the band so their glossy hair tosses about just so. And that's punctuated with shots of a very skinny lead singer slouching around the Listen Green Estate in Westminster. And we get a bit of artiness as well with someone wearing a pig's head because hey it's 1993 everyone yeah <laughs> and that that ties in with the um, record sleeve as well there's yeah. a sort of illustration of somebody in a suit wearing a pig head. yes yeah. yeah i love that they did that there was that kind of continuation it were these things mm. always always matched you know it was always a- well that's the thing suede had their worlds they created a world mm. um and this is something that when i wrote that very first piece that's what i was trying to get across that they had a very very distinct aesthetic mm. and they even had their own lexicon you know the lyrics were all about council homes nuclear skies acid rain loveless sex and that kind of stuff mm. you know and they're, they're inviting you in, into, into this world that, that only they are writing about yeah. really in pop yeah. and yeah they, they they'd obviously put so much thought into it they actually owe it all to top the pops um mm. i found out from the aforementioned book which is actually a good book despite the fact that it tried to write me out of history <laughs> um <laughs> uh, love and poison that um they were sitting around pre-record deal watching an episode of top of the pops in october 1989 right. actually and it made them get serious about suede because they just thought this is fucking awful mm. we've got to do something right because i think they were kind of a bit of a baggy adjacent band yeah. to begin with if you see the way they dressed brett wearing these sort of like loose tops and beads around his neck and that kind Oof. of stuff they did look a bit like a sort of i don't know almost um a candy flip kind of act do you know what i mean oh, dear. <laughs> if, if you look at photos i didn't see them in that time so i can't say if that uh, actually crossed over into their music at all but they obviously just had a complete rethink i thought no fuck it we're gonna have our own world our own aesthetic we're gonna look like the dodgy uncles 
comes out of a 70s sitcom and we are gonna do our hair like brian ferry and we are gonna sing like bowie and if anybody says oh you're ripping off bowie fuck it we're just gonna do it yeah, just like the 80s then yeah, well yeah exactly <laughs> fucking love them for that i really do mm. it's impossible to imagine suede as baggy when they are so tight yeah <laughs> yes. they just went <laughs> up the polar opposite of, of baggy in so so many mm. ways um i mean brett really puts in a shift in this video doesn't he yes, yes. Like, he this is a man who has considered how this is going to look at every level and how yeah. he is going to look it's such a performance and i'm sure it's it's been refined in the edit which is uh, extremely good but he's really giving it everything there is a python at some point oh, and brett does in fact several times like a snake unhinge his entire lower jaw <laughs> like, a python, like a python swallowing an egg i mean that might be something to do with the things that they have said they took that got them through the day mm. but uh, yeah. also it's not you know it's easy to say that it's not that he's gurning he's performing mm. you know and he's so coquettish and girlish mm and weird and kind of awkward and sexy and it's very moody and he's like a moody teenage girl kind of slouching around yes. the council estate <laughs> <laughs> and then kind of talking to a pig's head and, and caressing it and then punching it oh. and uh, kind of there's a bit where he just <laughs> turns to look at the camera with this sort of quizzical look on his face and turns the pig's head at the same time <laughs> it's great it's just the, the video it's just kind of strobing at you all these signifiers of mm. what they want to be and what they want to be about and we've said you know that that it's more it's it's beyond an aesthetic into iconography isn't it really Mm. also there's a lovely dog Mm. it's a doberman and they they throw him the pig effigy at the end because there's kind of there's the pig's head and then there's like a guy like a bonfire night guy with a pig's head on it and they throw that to the dog and the dog goes yeah (laughs) (laughs) possibly unintentionally hilarious but yeah yeah sarah's absolutely right um about the possible reasons why brett is putting in such a shift as it were Mm, because yeah this this is mentioned in the biography that the director pedro romhanyi uh just gave him loads of cocaine because the first two takes they did of the video were a bit (laughs) subdued and a bit boring and he just thought no sorry fuck this you know get this up your nostrils and and off they go yeah (laughs) they have got worked up to performance pitch yeah definitely i think that um brett appearing on top of the pops momentarily and that was obviously you know a a fuck up that that they didn't want but it's not just that he styles it out i think he's confident that the video is no less it's not like oh sorry we can't perform for you live or have a have the video as consolation like the video is as good you know, yeah. you're not losing anything. It's actually their their second Top of the Pops appearance, if, if you can call it yes. an appearance, because the first one was for Metal Mickey, and they were mortally mm. drunk on that occasion. And, <laughs> um, Brett repeatedly slapping his ass with a microphone. Of course, that was his trademark. Yes. And they, they were the first unsigned band to appear on Top of the Pops, despite right. what, uh, what Biss might tell you, um, because they'd mm. actually fulfilled the two-single deal they right. had with Nude Records, but they decided to stick with Nude in the end. So basically, when they were on Top of the Pops, they didn't have a record deal mm. oh by the way um the <laughs> the guy in the pig mask who's sitting in a kind of mastermind type black leather swivel chair i've sat in that chair oh <laughs> did you put the pig's head on because. as well god this really goes deep doesn't it fucking hell. did you sniff it simon did i sniff the pig <laughs> no the chair <laughs> well well here's the thing um, oh, oh, oh. the chair uh 
had uh, it, it previously belonged to Brett and Brett moved house and didn't have room for it anymore so he gave it to David Barnett the author of the uh, biography who was also running the Suede fan club at the time right. David was living with um, Errol Alcan the well known DJ right. who was also a mate of mine um, in, a, in a flat above a shop on Fortis Road in Tuffle Park mm. and I lived just around the corner so you know occasionally I'd end up there and uh, sitting on that chair and it was one of those chairs where, um, you know, you can imagine these, these mastermind chairs, you're sitting on a black leather cushion, but the cushion is stitched down. You can't pick the cushion up mm. as such, but you can kind of get your hands round the outside of it. Right. And in the crease round the outside of it, um, they would often find just ecstasy pills from, Fucking hell. from, from when it was Brett's chair. And they just, Jesus. you know, Brett and his mates had just casually sort of s- scattered or lost a load of, you know, ease down the side of it. Good Lord. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so so I've sat on that chair. Did it give you a sense of enormous well-being? <laughs> <laughs> Around the arse. Yeah. Right. <laughs> but even the video and Top of the Bops airing it has caused problems, as a news article in this week's NME bears out. Headline, chart show kissed off with Swade. Right. Swade's video for Animal Nitrate was pulled from last Saturday's chart show amidst allegations that producers objected to a scene depicting two men <gasps> kissing. Oh my God. The video was shown on Friday's late night show, which is only screened in the London area, but was mysteriously absent from the version which appeared the following lunchtime. A spokesperson for the Chacho denied that any kind of censorship was imposed. He told the enemy, we just didn't like the video. When asked why, in that case, the promo featured on the previous night's programme, he retorted, we make a children's TV programme. A spokesperson for the band declined to comment on the story. I mean, obviously, that scene's been removed. But fucking hell, Swade have just made Top of the Pops come off as more daring than the chart show. Yeah. Anything else to say? Oh, yeah, quite a lot. Oh, fucking hell, we are not even spoke about the song yet. <laughs> Jesus. The thing with Animal Nitrate is, um, it is a song about domestic abuse, just like the Marksman song was. Um, it's about loveless chem sex and and bumming basically um because the refrain kind of the chorus now you're over 21 um seems to be a reference to what was then the gay age of consent of course it it actually dates it perfectly to this year because the age of homosexual consent was lowered to 18 uh the following year in 1994 it was in the criminal justice act which i should point out um, uh, having slagged it off earlier for good reason it's not all bad and also it would have been lowered to 16 at that time if uh, Edwina Curry's amendment had succeeded. So, right. <laughs> so yeah. there you go. Do you reckon the government were, were thinking, well, we could keep the uh, age of consent as it is, but that guy from Suede seems really angry about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Better listen to the kids, you know. Yes. Um, the thing with Suede and queerness is a controversial issue because they got a lot of stick at the time there was the interview where brett said that he considered himself a bisexual man who'd never had a homosexual experience Mm. and people ripped the fucking shit out of him for that saying Mm. that he was co-opting gay culture when he had no right to yeah and that suede were just straight boys faking it the thing is the least gay looking member of the band was the gay member of the band and that's simon Mm. gilbert the drummer right and um i knew him kind of before he was in suede as well because um uh, you were uh, having gay sex with him (laughs) al 
Oh, come on, Jesus. Simon. Open That's goal, beneath man. you. And don't make a joke about beneath you either. <laughs> uh, yeah, in, in addition to um, doing stuff at UCL Union, I was doing quite a lot of work at ULU, the University of London Union, for the whole uni which is down mm. the road and that's the place that ricky gervais was the boss of and it's where yeah. ricky and i used to put gigs on and stuff like that and yeah um ricky was basically running suede out of that office right. but downstairs in the lobby there were two things there was um sta student travel association sort of cheap holidays interrail tickets and all that and there was this tiny little booth where you could buy gig tickets mostly gigs at Yulu itself because mm. um, do, do you remember the days when to, to get a ticket you actually had to go somewhere I know. and fucking you know pay with money or a credit card or whatever there was oh, there was one down by Oxford Circus times. Station yeah but Simon Gilbert was just sat there all fucking day so I was on kind of nodding terms or you know speaking terms with, with him already and yeah he was the, the, the gay member no one thought it was him because he had sort of like short spiky ginger hair you know a bit like Johnny Rotten they thought well he's obviously not gay um, mm. so yeah, it was kind of, kind of hiding in plain sight. Didn't have a handbag or anything. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But uh, all these people sort of just really, really attacking Suede for being, I suppose, tourists, sexual tourists, were mm. bang wrong. They, they just completely missed the point. Simon, weren't you in the building when Brett Anderson said that? Was I? Well, I believe you were. That quote came from uh, a massive interview. Uh, oh, was it the sex uh, debate at Melody Maker? The sex debate. When, yeah, yeah, When yeah. Melody Maker did the sex issue. Yeah, fuck which sake. was quite the thing to do in the 90s. Yeah, it's had Brett Anderson on the cover, seemingly having his head eaten by Leslie out of Silverfish. It wasn't Leslie out of Silverfish, yeah. Boy George was yeah. there as well. Yeah. Um, and uh, um, I, you know, I, I mentioned during the course of the, of the debate that I actually wasn't gay or bisexual myself. Mm. And afterwards, Boy George came up to me just like, no way, man. He was like, he was convinced <laughs> yeah. I was gay. He couldn't believe it. I, I was really proud of that. I thought, fucking hell, boy George, the king or, or the queen of gays, um, <laughs> thinks that I'm a gay. I thought, yes, that's kind of cool, you know. Yeah. Um, I think there's a lot to suggest that, you know, queerness is, it's a very, uh, there are people who think that you, this is not a word you should use still, but um, there are other people who think mm. that the umbrella is quite big, you know, and it, it yeah. refers more to a sort of general way of life than just sexuality. Um, also, I think, Brett's comment, I mean, he has kind of rode back on it since, and I think it was slightly, um, uh, the wording may have been slightly clumsy, but it's not yeah. actually a controversial statement because mm. the, the stereotype is, is that, you know, in order to be uh, certified bisexual, <laughs> one must uh, have at least one other person of another gender hanging off <laughs> you as you go about your business you know yeah, yeah. You, like you have to collect them like like psych tokens yeah. but actually you 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 don't uh, you know it's uh, you know, people yeah, know yeah. what their sexuality is before they have any sexual experience exactly at all. a lot yeah. of the time or they discover it later or they change them or you know whatever yes I, I think if somebody said that today it wouldn't make a ripple would it i mean fair play to a band for blurring the lines and all that yeah it does come off like them youths in the first term of uni who put about this lie that they're all oh, i just don't know am i gay am i not you know and in attempt to make them more interesting and convertible to girls which is what my mate with the playing cards also did shame on him there's quite a bit about them at this point that is 
affected mm. and sort of arch, mm. you know, a little bit. But I think brilliant. all that very quickly. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think, uh, <laughs> but it's a little possibly slightly too far in the same way that Brett's voice is this kind of spiky bark at this point mm. because he hasn't quite, you know, worked it. Like by the time they did Dog- Dogman Star, it's kind of, he's worked it down a bit more uh, into his chest and there's a song mm. you know mm. so it's got a little bit more room there it's kind of moved it down from the kind of bedsit esophagus to the sort of studio apartment of the the ribs mm. <laughs> i think the sort of that edge that was a little bit too sharp they didn't lose the sharpness but it kind of burned off a bit like alcohol in a sauce you know but it kept them from ever being jarringly earnest mm. this song it sounds like a really obvious single mm. it's got that chorus oh you know it's a real sort of sing-along thing incredibly it nearly wasn't a single mm. they wanted to put sleeping pills from the album out instead right but then they wrote this song quite late on in the process of making the album and Saul Galpin from Nude Records said no oh, come on that's the single and it, it just mm. seems mad now that it was ever not going to be the single yeah you can't yeah. imagine it can you it's, it's a phenomenal yeah. record I, re- I really think it's just gobsmacking piece of work it really is yeah, 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 yeah. Um, animal nitrate felt important um, jane savage mm. who was their pr person at the time sent a cassette of it sellotape to a velvet cushion to the nme on a motorbike um, <laughs> right I, I don't recall melody making receiving one which is you know i'm a bit pissed off about that um uh. and select magazine gave a whole page to the single separate from the usual singles page um about a right. month before it even came out it was like this is too important to be on the singles page this song has to have a feature about it right now oh, so wow. yeah and and they they started um, select magazine listed it among their singles of the year uh, before it was even a single before it was even out so yeah it, it felt like an event it felt very important mm. and of course this wasn't even the only time that a mainstream primetime television audience had seen Animal Nitrate that year because three mm. weeks earlier they're on the Brit Awards yes 16th of February 1993 and to me Suede doing Animal Nitrate on the Brits is right up there with KLF uh, with their machine guns and sheep's heads or Jarvis versus Jacko or any of that it felt like a real fucking moment mm. sadly the entire episode isn't out there anywhere i don't think um, on on the internet but the suede clip is and richard o'brien who was hosting introduces them as the already legendary suede Mm. and you can just see all the industry suits sat there in their fucking tuxedos (laughs) it's like a black tie event completely bemused while brett goes on there and slaps his ass with a microphone um (laughs) trashes the microphone stand the band drop their instruments and walk off at the end um brilliantly right bernard butler went on stage with his coat He he takes off his coat to play the song then he put his guitar down and put his coat back on before leaving the stage <laughs> yeah. i love that the movement that did feel the benefit yeah 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 <laughs> and bernard butler we, we haven't really really talked about him but no obviously he's the guy who answered the ad in nme and he is a fucking musical genius and mm-hmm. he turns up and uh, apparently w- what he said to them because they were about 25 the rest of them and he was 22 um you know he went along to sort of audition and uh, he, he said to them how, how old are you then? And they go, well, we're 25. And he said, well, you better hurry up then, hadn't you? <laughs> 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 I fucking love. Now, you old, no. you old bastards of 25. Yeah, yeah. 
<laughs> this performance at, at the Brits swayed with the only alternative bands on the bill. Right. I mean, Al, you spoke about our bands, mm. as it were, from a melody maker perspective. It felt very punk. Um, to, to give you some context, I, I've got the rest of the lineup Ooh. here from that year. So performing were Andy Bell and KD Lang doing No More Tears, Enough Is Enough. Right. Madness doing Night Boat to Cairo. Ooh. Um, Peter Gabriel doing Steam. What, the E17 song? <laughs> God. <laughs> Rod Stewart doing a cover version of Ruby Tuesday. Ooh. And then Sway doing Animal Nitrate. And uh, Tasmin Archer doing Sleep in Satellite. <laughs> right. right? Mm. The winners that year, right? Annie Lennox obviously because them's the rules yes. right um <laughs> take that shakespeare's sister peter gabriel mick hucknell annie lennox again oh. simply red again oh. um rod stewart prince okay prince um rem yeah okay rem nirvana yeah right um nigel fucking kennedy oh. and wayne's world is broadly very establishment mm. very mainstream so honestly i can just vividly remember to see suede breaking out of their usual context which was still kind of the hundred club or the africa center like little venues mm. and storming the brits felt like a real invasion mm. yeah i mean it, it's of a piece with Everything else about them, with with the video and with Brett standing there next to Mark Franklin, it's very arresting and striking and whoa, you know, and it really sort of knocks you back in, in your seat in a really good way. Mm. Although possibly not for the people who were there on the night. <laughs> it's you can feel there's kind of no air in the room at all, and they yeah. it, it doesn't affect them whatsoever. There's no self consciousness. There's just they're there to do what they do. They're there to be swayed, and mm. it is quite mind boggling. What about you, Al? Well, you know me, Simon. This sort of thing, it wasn't going to be my cup of tea. But to see that lot doing what they're doing amongst fucking Annie Lennox and Rod Stewart. And I just thought, well, you know, there's a lot worse of this sort of thing knocking about. And if this is going to be the coming thing, then good, bring it on. You know, to paraphrase the parlance of the day, I might not like it, but I'm going to have to go along with it. (laughs) Ich nichten lichten. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So I I looked in Love and Poison, the biography, um, to to see what was going on behind the scenes at the Brit Awards, um, which took place at Alexandra Palace. And John Aidman, who was their manager at the time, says, everyone was really nervous and we got given a big old Winnebago thing, which we sat in all day. I think they de-stressed themselves by changing their clothes a lot and Brett recurringly asking me for a hairdryer. I went to the production office and they were having share problems because she was only take her water in small bottles and they bought big ones amateurs so the bloke from suede's hairdryer was not the major concern (laughs) i love that so first of all uh, share being really kind of spinal tap about (laughs) about the format in which her water has to be served um and then apparently when when they go on stage charlie charlton who was of the management team and then later became their manager apparently knocked bernard's guitar when he handed it to him so the guitar was all out of tune they go on he's got to play so he plays and so it sounds a bit and that's why um, and there, there was a guy doing the, the sound for them who'd never done their sound before so it's all a bit shambolic it was all fucked and the theory that charlie has is that brett just sensed this and just really fucking went for it because he's like we're gonna sound terrible i've got to leave them with something to remember mm. so he goes into full arse slapping mode yes. um <laughs> the party afterwards was was in a specially made fun fair because that's what the brit awards is like mm. and uh, they took load of ecstasy because that was their their thing as well as coke at 
the time. They're all on a high after what they thought was just this mind-blowing television <laughs> moment, right? And um, Saul Galpin's mum, Saul being the, the boss of Nude Records, Saul's mum phoned him up to commiserate. She said, oh. oh, Saul, I'm so sorry. I've just seen Suede on the Brits. Are you OK? <laughs> <laughs> she thought his career was finished and Suede were finished. Oh. And he, he had to tell her, that was the greatest moment of my life. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose we got to talk about the lyrics because, uh, yeah, fucking hell. You wouldn't want to explain them to your non would you? So I don't know if I've said this before um, about uh, using the, the second person. So it's written in the second person, which uh, gives mm. a certain immediacy, but it also gives you a certain distance. It's like often when, um, yeah, you're taking I out of it and you're putting a sort of little grass verge there that could protect you or give you a few steps away to mm. make sense of things or reaching for something universal. It's like I noticed a while ago, and you're going to notice it too now, that when people are interviewed um, by news after some traumatic incident, immediately or later, they very often use you when speaking about what happened mm. and they'll switch mid-sentence from first to mm. second person. Mm. Like, the lightning struck me and it was like you were being burned all mm. along your veins, you know. Mm. It's like stepping out of your own harrowing experience to help yeah. yourself. And it's also stepping towards the person who's asking you about it, sort of invite them mm. to understand. Yeah. Imagine if you were struck by lightning, imagine yourself as me, yeah. you know. So yeah. there's that. But there's also, it's probably, it, it's probably just that he was writing in a kind of omniscient storytelling position. I mean, I just think it's a great use of the second person. It, it, it sort of adds this layer of discomfort and accusation. But I think it can also be interpreted as stealth first person. Because mm. I kind of, you know, I know the song really well. And it's like, it, it, it's such a bop, you know, and it's got such dark subject matter that it's like, okay, I haven't really thought about this. Um, and I thought the tone is really vile mm. and vicious. And it's like, where does that come from? Who who would say this? Like, I don't know, a bad parent or a scorned lover or, oh, it's it's like somebody's nasty inner mm. voice. Like, yes. that's the only yes. way that you get that horrible. It's like talking to them as they're squirming in self-loathing, which is so clever and disquieting. Like, people who have been um, abused will often blame mm. themselves. And this is in a brilliant, bouncy, sing-along bit yeah. of glam pop. So, the, the dissonance is, is incredible. And it, it's so marbled with ambiguities as well. I mean, people take the piss out of Brett, sometimes correctly, for his lyrics. But this is such a deceptively clever bit of songwriting you know it could be moralizing or finger wagging or it could be envious or belittling or admiring you know everything is you know if you call someone an animal it could be a great compliment in a sexual sense mm. or completely damning like what's wrong with you you've lost all your humanity mm. it could be a pet really sort of dehumanizing taking away their agency or elevating them to the status of an ancient god Ooh. it's very sophisticated and daring like now you're over 21 yeah. okay so now you're legally free to fuck who you want mm. or you're already over the hill yeah, for the kind yeah. of sketchy guys you know and the self-loathing deepens like is this about freedom and pleasing yourself or now your animal's gone or is it about the inexorable trap of formative experience and when the cage is opened you just stay in it mm. you know this unhealthy unpleasant violent exploitative drug-fueled pain-racked illegal relationship was your first and you hated it and it fulfilled you and you loved it and it destroyed you and now it's over nothing is ever going to feel so mm. good and so wrong again nothing's ever going to make you feel anything again what does that say about you mm. what sort of creature are you what does it take to turn you 
you know, it, yeah. it's so kind of crawling, creeping with with all this extremely uncomfortable stuff, and mm. I, uh, I, I love it. Yeah, yeah I, I think you're completely right about that that dissonance because we're looking at Suede; they're this young, sexy band singing about sex. You expect them to write in a kind of randy way <laughs> do you know what yeah. i mean <laughs> but but instead it's really fucking bleak and yeah like like sarah i i can't even say the lyrics without almost bursting into song but the idea of you know what does it take to turn you on? <laughs> you know the, the idea of being unable to get it up essentially it runs so counter to this strutting sexy band that they were mm. and that, that that is what's so brilliant about it and yeah um, at the end this supposedly brutal lover that the subject of the song had um is, is described as an animal you know he's just an animal um there's a real venom <laughs> to when he does it live because uh, in the live version he always sings he's just a fucking animal <laughs> then the hand clips you know he really goes for it at that moment i just completely endorse everything that sarah just said it's a brilliant brilliant lyric mm. i love the fact that um even the fact that it isn't clear exactly what position he's um i mean it's kind of suspended judgment in some ways but also it's not clear who the character is or, or where the voice is coming from and i think that's another thing that kind of destabilizes you as you're listening to it but it's all held together with this brilliant brilliant pop tune uh, i wonder if it's the same animal as in the song animal lover on the album where brett sings um i heard you've been inside but what were you in for Right. Um, yeah, so just a bit yeah. of speculation. What's yeah. happened to him? Where has he gone? Did he yeah. leave? Is he in prison? Is he dead? What has happened? Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And they put this on a Thursday evening when kids are watching. <laughs> Fucking hell. It's so yeah. obviously dirty. Mm. It's like, that's sex, isn't it? That's some sex. Don't know what's <laughs> going on, but it's sex. But yeah, I mean, the way we're going on, we ought to run this up by saying that they became the biggest band of the 90s and became so influential and everything. And... Uh, what happened? Yeah, I mean, they were sort of the trailblazers for Britpop, but they got steamrolled by other bands, including, I mean, it must have been gutting for them that Blur in particular became bigger than, than Suede. How must that have felt? Mm. But Oasis as well. Mm. And then, um, obviously, Suede was scuppered um, for a little while by the fact that Bernard left and they had to bring in a new guitarist who was um, this untried 17-year-old kid, Richard Oakes, who was actually brilliant, mm. but it sort of dented their credibility in the eyes of some people. So that even when they were bringing out their absolute masterpiece of a second album, Dogman mm. Star, it felt a little bit like they were holed below the waterline. Mm. You know, it really did. And then when they actually made it big again, again, the third time round with Coming Up, it felt like they were riding on the coattails of Oasis, mm. which is so wrong. Yeah. But it, it just felt like, well, the world is now ready for guitar-based bands. Mm. And Suede had toned it down by this point. He was wearing sensible shirts rather than blouses and pearls oh. and his onstage persona was a bit more geezerish mm. I, I remember so it, it was a bit sad that that in order to get the success that was really overdue they had to sort of play by brit rock or dad rock's rules but we're getting a bit ahead of ourselves but yeah basically as you hint there al they they never did become the sort of all-conquering dominant force that that they should have done mm. but but it felt like they were gonna yeah them and the manics yeah. suede and the manic street preachers were the two bands in the early 90s 
90s that I personally, I thought, fucking sign me up. This is my army. I'm joining that army. I will fight to the death for you guys. <laughs> it was it was a cause to get behind. Suede and the Manics. Mm. And I'm, I remember once, because um, I was always writing about both those bands in, in Melody Maker. Mm. I remember once being at some kind of music biz after party and uh, Matt Osman approaching me and saying, come on, Simon, you've got to tell me. Who do you prefer, us or the Manics? Ooh. And I paused and I said, I'm sorry, but it's the Manics. And he said, I knew it, I knew it. <laughs> <laughs> do you think your lot over-egged it with Suede? Because um, apparently they were on 18 magazine covers before their album even came out. It creates a lot of resentment if you hype up a band that much and say they're mm. the best new band in Britain, even if they are plainly the best new band in Britain. Mm. And yeah, maybe it was too much too soon. And some of the front covers didn't do them any favours. There was the infamous um, Select magazine cover, which superimposed oh, God, yes. Brett on the Union Jack. I think we might even have mentioned that in a previous mm. episode. And Brett didn't want anything to do with that sort of flag-waving bullshit, even though culturally Suede were part of the fight back. They were very much um, the fight back of British references and a British kind of indie glam sensibility um, against that kind of chest-beating, hairy, macho uh, American rock that mm. the grunge represented. Mm. But they, they they didn't want to you know be involved in this stupid fucking almost keep calm and carry on business yes. that Britpop became. Do you know what I mean? What would an American reader think of that cover? Some bloke slapping his arse and saying, And it says Yanks, Yanks go, go home, home which yes. he never said, of course. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't really know what Brett's opinion was of grunge bands. It doesn't really matter. Um, no. But... It can't have done them any favours. I, I don't even know if, you know, that, that magazine reached the United States. But if it did, it cannot have done them any favours. No. But then Suede are a classic example of one of those British bands who are only mm. going to appeal to Anglophiles yeah. on the coasts yeah. in the States. I love that they were the London Suede. Yes, <laughs> it's a better name. The London Suede is a better <laughs> name. I've, I've got a copy of um, Stay Together that's credited as the London Suede. And it's one of my most prized <laughs> Suede possessions. I love it. it is it's a oh, good name amazing. I always call them the London Suede I'm surprised I haven't been yeah. doing it all the way through this this <laughs> chat actually it's weird to me the uh, the Union Jack thing because obviously it would have been way worse if it had just been an English flag oh, God. because you you just no just none of that but I do think of Suede as a very English band specifically mm. they show a route to not taking pride in Englishness, but pleasure mm. and a release of shame. It's like an, mm. an inversion or a subversion of that kind of English shame about, you know, <laughs> empire and sex and everything in between, you know. It's, and, and they kind of mine, mm. that's a seam that they mine, you know. Um, and it's got nothing to do with jingoism or exceptionalism. And there's so many things about Englishness that they kind of correct they don't really satirize it and they don't really dismiss it they just kind of offer some sort of alternative yeah. to it and there's so much about them that you don't instinctively associate with the english like you know lusciousness and you know lasciviousness mm. yeah but just yeah i don't know there's a is this kind of upgrade to englishness that they have like we are a dirty grubby people and they know that and they haven't they haven't cleaned that up they've just kind of excavated mm. under it to find the really good stuff to find the sort of depth man that's yeah. suede is such a fascinating band and it's, it's way beyond the wit of me to make full yeah. sense of them but i completely get it i completely get it it's it's really um weird and counterintuitive now in 2023 to be talking about any kind of positive britishness because it's just been mm. so soiled by brexit and everything that came with it yeah, um, yeah. 
But at the time, I think Suede, as Sarah says, and also I would say Saint-Étienne did a really good job of it. And Saint-Étienne were doing it mm. slightly before Suede. They were kind of curating um, an alternate Britishness of cool 70s junk shop glam records mm. that everyone's forgotten or, you know, um, footballers that everyone's forgotten and, 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 and neighbourhoods in London that mm. don't normally get mentioned and, and, and stuff like that. I th- this is St Etienne I'm talking about now. I think Bob and Pete and Sarah presented a kind of positive Britishness and Suede came along and, and, and did a similar thing in a, in a slightly different way because Suede were not ones to sort of mm. name drop anything. Their, their, their lyrics yeah. were quite universal but they they did come from that hinterland outside london that's um it's it's neither london nor the coast it's sort of be- between london and brighton and um i've i've written about the cure in a similar way but i first picked up on this uh when i was reviewing the suede b-side compilation mm. sci-fi lullabies suede by the way wrote mm. fucking brilliant b-sides yeah, yeah. their b-side album it's a double album and it's better than most right. people's fucking studio album but but in in writing that a review of that i i was saying that there are all these places it's sort of dormitory towns that are just within reach of london where you can see the lights of london almost down the railway mm. track but you, you're not quite there so yeah. colchester with blur um croydon uh, saint etienne mm. haywards heath yeah. suede and so on um and I, I i really think and crawley for the cure yeah. but um woking uh, yeah woking yeah absolutely the jam yeah but suede um are a bit m- more similar to the cure in in that they don't name check british stuff their sensibility is uniquely english but they are at Mm. least allowing a door open for anyone in the world to kind of get it i think if they share share that sensibility deep within it there's something about otherness and you know not belonging anywhere yes which Mm. is the experience of a lot of people who just desperately want to go to london then they go to london it's like yes i've made it oh fuck because london will never let you in either I mean, it will tolerate your presence, Mm. but it is as brutal as nature. You can never Mm. really be a part of it. You go, oh, no. And so there's a whole country of people who don't feel they belong. And Suede, Mm. they they are of that thing as well, very much. And the other thing about Suede is you can't really lump them in with anyone else. I mean, every time I see on Facebook some flyer for another fucking Britpop night, they've always got this collage of Noel and Liam and... Damon and Jarvis and, you know, Mr. Motivator and the Spice Girls. And then you see Brett Anderson there and you just (laughs) think, what are you doing there? You might as well take him out and replace him with a cutout of Hulk Hogan (laughs) because he doesn't belong there either. This is the thing about not fitting in anywhere. It is a hard road to tread, but it has Mm. its compensations. Mm. I think they transcend Britpop now and they did then. You know, like Mm. the context that they have now is still their own and it always was. And I think, yeah, obviously they suffered for it, but they've kind of come through it and outlasted it in the largest way. Obviously, there was the kind of manufactured uh, Blur versus Oasis thing at the centre of supposedly at the centre of Britpop. But it's Mm. really kind of suede and pulp or Blur and Oasis, isn't it? You know, it's that's Mm. kind of how it's separated out. Whatever backlash there was against Suede in a year or so's time was down to them not selling enough records. That was the big slag off about them. It's like, haha, I got you. You think you're so big and clever. Well, why aren't you number one? You know, Oasis number Mm. one. Why aren't you number one? Yeah, yeah, there's all that. By the way, Sarah mentions Suede outlasting all the bullshit. I've got Mm. to add here that of all the bands who have split up 
and then got back together and, and maybe playing sort of nostalgic heritage gigs. Suede are the one who have made fucking brilliant new albums yeah, since yeah, getting yeah. back together. It's extraordinary. The first one, okay, the first one, Blood Sports, was kind of finding their feet. It sounds like a Suede album. It's just them basically saying, yep, yeah, we can still make a suede kind of record. But the mm. three they've done since then are grand artistic statements. They are incredible, mm. really ballsy of them to do that and actually way better than the, the final album of their first incarnation which is A New Morning which shamefully mm. I gave a 5 out of 5 review to just out, just oh. out of loyalty really because it was not, not a very good album <laughs> Yeah, I think Brett has disowned that one now hasn't he? Yeah, yeah, yeah but yeah, seriously <laughs> of, of all the comeback bands you know normally like when, when Pixies came back the first couple of tours mm. fucking incredible to, to see them sounding better than ever before but mm. then it's like the dreaded thing of like well here's our new album it's like no 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 we don't but but suede are the exception they really are i mean technically you could say they're a heritage band at this point but they don't feel like that at all like um i mean for one thing brett's voice hasn't changed at all and their hearts are still in it they found a new way Mm. to be the band that they are and mm. I think there's there's still they've maintained a kind of sincerity and and an, an innocence somehow and and a beauty that that is quite magical really they're they're such a special mm. band I I love what has become of them it's really wonderful yeah they could totally mm. just be phoning it in at this point but no mm. as we're recording this I'm going to see Suede in a couple of days time Ooh. and I've seen them earlier this year and they are terrifying as a live act right now um, I mentioned before right. that Brett is. Only only four days younger than me and you see the fucker right he comes (laughs) he looks incredible he comes swaggering out on stage i love how cocky he is by the way like like even now he's still like ridiculously elegant he is an elegant sir in a tevelin shirt yeah um yeah yeah so he sort of struts out on stage he's got this little wooden box with white gaffer tape around the edge so he doesn't fall off that he jumps up on and he uses it to sort of propel himself just so that his onstage jumps are that bit higher and you know he he, he goes into the crowd people sort of tearing at him and it's so physical he's just got so much incredible energy about him it's it's feral is what it is Mm. i remember a couple of years ago when he first started pulling this shit out of the box and and performing like that my wife and i saw them at hammersmith apollo and my wife turned to me and said is he all right is he dying because she thought it was the performance of a dying man who just wanted to fucking put it all out there one last time but he's doing that he's doing that every fucking night at the moment at the age of 56 i just can't get my head around it he is a phenomenon the best thing that happened in the afterlife of this song and i don't know if you've seen this do the words or the word gay penis bum mean anything to you? <laughs> Separately, yes. Together, not so much. Oh, my God. Have you got a treat in store? Right, OK. <laughs> um, so there's this guy. Um, on Twitter, he was called Coincidence, but he somehow right. had his account suspended. I don't know what he's done wrong. Um, and on, on YouTube, he's Colin Surname. Um, right. and, and his YouTube account is still there. What he did, he's a fucking genius, this guy. He made a mockumentary, if you will, um, about Suede called The Insatiables. Right. And it starts off with a voiceover that goes, in 1989, Brett Wood Anderson and Matwell Osman advertised in the NMA me wanting to form a band for people who pretend they're gay to listen to. <laughs> <laughs> 
I, I should say for a start, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty certain that Colin is gay himself. So, you know. Um, anyway, uh, and it, it continues. Brett combines the homoerotic charisma of 70s frontmen with the homoerotic charisma of 80s frontmen. <laughs> <laughs> and then... Um, there are these little snippets of suede songs that he's kind of adapted. Uh, right. So Animal Nitrate is changed to gay penis bum. <laughs> and uh, it goes, oh, what turns me on? Oh, gay penis bum, because I'm homosexual. <laughs> and this, this went kind of viral, right? And the next gig that actual suede played in dublin brett actually sang it like that oh, <laughs> yeah. Bravo. brett sang gay penis bum at the gig i mean who says suede don't have a sense of humor oh. but, you know. <laughs> see see comic relief right that is actually funny yes. okay yeah <laughs> yes <laughs> Uh, yeah, I think it's. Uh, uh, I I do think it's okay to write in character, even if it's not directly from your experience. Mm, yeah. I think Brett Anderson was not the first person to do this, and will not be the last. You know, no. it's um, it's fine. You know, Kate Bush um, was not actually a fetus during nuclear <laughs> war, <laughs> but it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> So the following week, Animal Nitrate stayed at number seven and would get no further. But Suede became the fastest selling debut LP since Welcome to the Pleasure Dome by Frank Air and entered the album chart at number one. The follow up, So Young, only got to number 22, but they go on to have seven more top 10 hits throughout the 90s and two more number one LPs. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. made the top 40 last year, duetting with Roy Orbison for crying. Now solo and on its second release, Constant Craving is at 21 and live by satellite from Hawaii. We 
were transported straight from Lisson Green to a shot of some apartments on the coast of Honolulu, as Franklin brags on about the BBC satellite capabilities as we drop in on a live performance of Constant Craving by K.D. Lang. Born in Edmonton, Canada in 1961, Catherine Dawn Lang was relocated to the village of Consort in Alberta at the age of nine months, where she would grow up. While attending Red Deer College and becoming obsessed with Patsy Cline, Lang decided to have a go at a singing career, moving back to Edmonton after graduating in 1982 and forming a tribute band called The Reclines, which played a sort of country venues in the city, whilst finding time to do a seven-hour performance piece reenactment of Barney Clark's artificial heart transplant, it says here in <laughs> Wikipedia, citation needed. In 1984, The Reclines, now called K.D. Lang and The Reclines, put out the LP A Truly Western Experience and she'd release another with them before she went solo in 1986 and worked with Dave Edmonds on the LP Angel with a Lariat. A year later, Lang was approached by Roy Orbison to duet with him on a re-recording of his 1961 single Crying for the soundtrack to the film Hiding Out, which got to number two in Canada and won a Grammy, but did nothing over here. And it would take a performance during the closing ceremony of the 1988 Winter Olympics in Calgary to get Lang on British television when she sang the Alberta Rose. In 1992, Lang put out the LP Ingenue, and this, the follow-up to Barefoot, which failed to chart, was the lead-off single, which got to number 52 over here in May of that year. But then two things happened. The first one was an interview with the American LGBT magazine Advocate in June, where Lang proclaimed she was playing goaltender for the other ice hockey team, or whatever term they use in Canada. <laughs> and then a re-release of Crying caught on in the UK and went all the way to number 13 in August. In the wake of increased interest in her, Constant Craving was re-released and last week it entered the chart at number 37. This week it soared 16 places to number 21, which has inspired Stanley Appel to fire up the satellite and send it over Hawaii for a live performance of the song, presumably before a gig or summer. And, you know, I feel top of the pops of Mr Trick here, chaps, because, you know, people of that era would have seen those white apartments after being told that they were in Hawaii and immediately put two and two together so so what he should have done was a sped up camera zoom towards the balcony and have KD Lang standing there dressed up in a suit like Jack Lord for that Hawaii 5 opening credits vibe <laughs> that would have been nice and um, panel we've already experienced this sort of thing with Etta James 3T and Montel yeah. Jordan haven't we you know it's that pop star you've heard about but singing live in that America where they make all the films but it's got to be said that the thrill of live transatlantic broadcasting is it's worn right off by the early 90s hasn't it I mean Madness introducing House of Fun live from Japan a mere nine years previous that was an absolute fucking mind blast wasn't it mm. but things like this by 1993 see uh, the thrill's gone 
one, hasn't it? Yeah, there's a kind of weird flatness and a fuzziness about the satellite Top of the Pots yeah. performances that just kind of, I don't know what it is. It always feels very remote. Mm. I think they fucked it. I think they fucked it up because, yeah, it's live in Hawaii. But what we get is this establishing shot of Hawaii from the air. It's almost like proto-drone footage mm. of beaches and hotels. But yeah. then we cut and it's just KD sat on her own in the dark. She, she could have been, been anywhere. Anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it comes back, there's a guitar break later on where we see some more irrelevant footage of the flora and mountains of mm. Hawaii. But there's no connection between that and the actual performance. It's, yeah, it's really get her out odd. on the beach. Because yeah. I remember, Simon, uh, previously you were talking about going to see your first gigs and being disappointed that they didn't sound as good as the records. And you almost always get the same feeling when a satellite performance was trotted out. It just feels like the talent shows they have today which are about seeing if someone could reach a standard. Yeah. You know, like Torval and Dean doing their compulsories. And here we're being told to just sit back and see if this artist can actually do it without all that studio trickery and computers and whatnot. Well, the thing is, I don't know if you've noticed this, but it doesn't have the backing vocals no. where she harmonises with herself. And it made me realise that her harmonising with herself on the record totally makes it, you mm. know. And when, when you don't have that, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's a very sparse backing here as well. Sometimes it's mm. barely more than drums. Mm. I mean, I've got opinions on the song which come to you, but I just think that choice to make her do it very solo like mm. that loses something I yeah think. i don't disagree but it is also a very very good performance like she makes oh, it gotcha. look so easy mm. like this is obviously what this person is supposed to be doing and she's also she's sitting down which is not the best position for singing no. um but yeah it, she's in total command of her instrument mm. you know she ad-libs just a little bit just to give a few moments a kind of a little curl or a little tickle and you, so you know it's live yes. and she doesn't mm. overextend herself for the high notes I mean it does lose something in the chorus Yeah, you're right because there's usually that I will not attempt it myself but yeah, <laughs> it is missing that high note a bit but she's not overextending herself she probably has to save her voice for like more important stuff she's got yeah. happening to be honest there's a very sound checky vibe about it isn't there mm. yeah but you know if, if that was a sound check while you were in the place you'd, you'd sit and listen to the whole thing wouldn't you yeah it's got to be said the lower case Canadian can piss this sort of thing out of her arse all day, can't she? So yeah. it's no burden to sit through this. She's there, sat on the edge of a platform in a Harley Davidson t-shirt, underneath a denim shirt, and she's much better served by the video, which appears to be set in a Jim Rose circus-like performance during the Depression. It's meant to be Waiting for Godot, isn't yes. it? Yes. Um, Mark Romanek, who's a really good director, yes. yeah, it's supposed to be a, a theatrical premiere of Waiting for Godot is, is, the, is the premise of it. But yeah. as as far as satellite broadcasts from Top of the Pops go, we've seen far, far worse, haven't we? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And it does show she has a fantastic voice. Not that I ever particularly doubted that. No. It really does. Even though it's a shame that there aren't two of her, one harmonising with the other. It's mm. Yeah, it's, it's still, still really impressive from that point of view. And I really surprised myself with my reaction to this because... I I think I was a bit anti-KD Lang Ooh. back in the day. Not for any massive reason, but part of it was the lowercase lettering. Uh. Right? It was like E.E. E. Cummings, yeah. which was such a fucking annoying affectation. Dreamhampton. Yeah, or a late 80s sandwich bar in Islington <laughs> that thinks it's something special and is called something like refuel oh. you know <laughs> that's what it reminded me of it, the whole conceit of lowercase lettering was a very sort of trendy middle class thing mm. in that period and, I, and it, it kind of rubbed me up the wrong way <laughs> 
Is it? I, I didn't realise that a, a case had a class. That's, oh, yeah. Uh, oh, yes. <laughs> oh, trust me. Trust me. Um, it was kind of styled after E.E. E. Cummings. And I think for the same reason, which was to separate the kind of performance self from the person. Mm. It is a bit annoying, but um, it's not like the audience grade annoying, mm. where it's like, oh, it's all one word. Oh, no, what am I going to do? <laughs> it's like wearing sunglasses, isn't it? Sunglasses at night. Yeah, but I don't want people staring mm. in my eyes all the time. I, so I get The it. enemy of Microsoft Word spell check, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> she might as well have had a red wobbly line underneath her name as well. Yeah, because it is quite attention seeky <laughs> in a way. We, we have to tackle the lesbian elephant in the room. Yes! Um, Lesbian elephants, <laughs> come on! <laughs> well, this is another reason why I was maybe slightly set against her. Not because I'm a massive homophobe. <laughs> now, w- what it is, right, it, it was obviously very important at the time that she was a visible lesbian woman in pop and and she was a pioneer of that and also not a fun lesbian like you get in porn or in (laughs) katy perry videos fun lesbian a serious and real lesbian woman like you get in life okay Mm. um and there weren't many about in the pop landscape um of the late 80s early 90s who was there who was there in 1993 who was out all right well, there was Frank with a PH. Um, right. There was the Indigo Girls. And that was about it. I mean, some mm. would have mentioned or guessed Michelle Shocked, but she doesn't identify as lesbian. Tracy Chapman has never confirmed her sexuality. Mm. So Katie Lang was way out in front on that score. And because of that, because she was that important figure, you felt at the time there was a moral imperative coercing you to like her. Right. I'm very resistant to that sort of thing. So, yeah, I I think I probably just rolled my eyes at the fucking, first of all, the lowercase lettering. And secondly, this kind of, there was an edge to, if people said, do you like Katie Lang? There's a certain edge to the question of like, if you don't like her, then you're a bigot. Do you know what I mean? (laughs) Are you or are you not a friend of Catherine? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. So I suppose I hadn't given her any thought for decades until we uh, chose to look at this episode of top of the pops mm. and what i would never ever think over all those years was what i need now is to hear constant craving by katie mm. lang but i heard it and it just made me stop in my tracks for a moment mm. it it feels like a song with significant emotional heft it feels yes. important in the same way that the suede song feels important even lines like maybe a great magnet pulls all souls towards truth has a profundity to it you know and yeah yeah this was probably the the big shock of the episode for me was oh wow i really like constant craving by katie lang and it was definitely played upon if not necessarily by her because in 1993 nobody gave the slightest bit of a fuck about a country singer in britain but a country music singer from Canada who didn't eat meat and was a lesbian as well. That's a lot of hooks you can hang things on, isn't it? Well, that takes balls, being a gay woman or a gay man in the world of country music. Yeah. I mean, seriously, man. And also, the, yeah, yeah, the whole thing about opposing the meat trade, that she's yeah. vegetarian and she actually launched that Meat Stinks campaign. And yes. given that she grew up in Alberta, which is a cattle ranching state, as we know, and mm. um, she ended up getting banned from more than 30 radio stations in Alberta. 
Alberta and more than a dozen in the US. Yeah. I don't know if you saw this bit, but there was a, a sign in her hometown of consort which said, home of Katie Lang. That was burned to the ground. And she was <laughs> actually that. denounced by Alberta's agriculture minister for her supposed betrayal. I mean, fucking yeah. hell. Yeah. It's like the Wurzels doing meat is murder, isn't it? Right, exactly. I'd be gay. But talking about the whole sexuality thing and her kind of androgyny and her status as as an icon of that a few months after this song there's that famous um august 93 issue of vanity fair oh yes with, um, that photo of her um on the cover in a barber's chair being shaved with a razor by cindy crawford yeah. that that's yet yeah, stuff like that in a pre-internet age that was big i really think so yeah yeah, yeah because by 1993 it was it was kind of accepted even if it was grudgingly by most people that gay men weren't going to go away and just wanted to get on with it and obviously being at university at the time you know i was massively aware about same-sex palaver going on there'd be people at college that you knew who were gay or had suspicions that they were gay but they mainly kept it on the down low but at uni lads would be coming out left right and center yeah and the ones who were already out some of them practically went into orbit you know especially when you were living in london <laughs> yeah yeah but that option didn't seem to be available to the women folk who were that way inclined you know after i graduated there were at least three women i knew and linked up with afterwards and you know they sat me down and told me that they were lesbians and I always had to say, yeah, everybody knew Doug. So for someone like KD Lang to come out back then, even if it was before she was really known over it, it must have been a massive deal. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't hurt that she looks like a really cute member of the Undertones. <laughs> you know, one of my mates was telling me that he went to a KD Lang gig and it was absolutely full of women who were just screaming at her yeah. as if she was Donny Osmond right the way through. Wow. I can imagine, yeah. Yeah, these things are important in, in the culture, aren't they? And, yeah. you know, I think she can be proud of the part she played. But yeah. also, she was just living her life. There was another yeah. photo shoot with her as actually as Elvis, wasn't there? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't remember what that was for. But that was brilliant. Mm. And I suppose we we got used to the idea of gay male pop stars in the 80s, hadn't we? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think everybody was on board with that. It's like, even if it was grudgingly, it's like, okay, well, some men are gay and some of those gay mm. men are going to be pop stars and they're going to be yeah. very successful ones. Yeah. More birds for the rest of us, eh? <laughs> but yeah, not not with women. The other thing is as well that she is clearly uh, dressing down for this performance, mm. you know, mm. and, and didn't feel any need to kind of conform to any stereotypical beauty standards in that way but um also she's her voice is very feminine mm. she's got this very pure clear tone mm. to her voice mm. she almost sounds like liza minnelli like a sort of broadway singer mm. slipping between musical contexts as you listen i mean she did she kind of meandered between genres i mean partly because country would not really accept her no. you know i mean she, she lived in nashville it's like that was tough you know what though for everything i said about country being a difficult place for a gay woman roy orbison choosing when kd was still very early on yeah. in her career to duet with her fucking mm. respect to roy orbison for that you know yeah, yeah. yeah. that was before she was out though. oh come on yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like the same as your friends at uni. Come on. <laughs> of course, when you're an LGBT songwriter, everything has an extra layer of meaning. Or at the very least, other people try to lump on an extra layer of meaning, you know, even when it's not there. You know, like when George Michael was forced out, you, you'd go over the Wham singles and go, ah, oh, so maybe Club Tropicana was a gay club, or, oh, that's why he didn't want his mate to get married in Young Guns Go For 
for it. Could be true, but it could also be ridiculous because it kind of implies that everything gay people do is entirely determined by their sexuality. It's like seeing George Michael in the papers eating a packet of frazzles and going, oh, they must be the gay crisps then. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, yeah. Depends which pocket you put the packet in. <laughs> <laughs> well... I do think you're right that everything does get given this extra layer. Mm. And I wonder if, I I don't want to sort of speak for you, but did you mean by that that uh, constant craving is hinting at the kind of longing and yearning for forbidden fruit? Yeah, um, yeah. And that being the situation under which gay people had to basically live Mm. for centuries. You you could say it elevates the context of the song from (laughs) boo-hoo, you don't fancy me because I'm not attractive enough or you with someone else to, oh, fucking hell, you don't fancy me because nature and biology. Yeah, it's got a sort of echo of, you know, Radcliffe Hall, the well of loneliness or something like that. I think, you know, good or great songwriters will uh, generally draw from their own experience, but they will strive to reach others. You know, that's kind of what Mm. they do. So um, a lot of, you know, a lot of great songs are, it's not that it's ambiguous, it's just that it's expansive and and Mm. large and um, people can relate to it you know, they'll find something in it to relate to. And if you're a gay person, it's going to be about your own, your own experience as a gay person, but you're also a person and you want to connect with all kinds of audiences. And we can sit all day pulling apart the semiotics and inner meanings and all that cobblers while millions of other people are coming across it on Radio 2 and thinking, oh, this is lovely. It is lovely. It is lovely. And that's it. You know, next time it's on the radio, I will listen because I wouldn't say it's blown my mind, but it's certainly given me a slight slap upside the head that I, I like this song. So, the following week constant craving jumped two places to number 19 and a week later we get to number 15 its highest position the follow-up the mind of love open brackets where is your head catherine close brackets would only get to number 72 in may and she never got near the top 40 again but she closed out the year with that cover of vanity fair where she got a shave off cindy crawford and appeared at the concert of hope for the national aids trust with george michael david bower and Mick Hucknall. I would just like to ask, why wasn't there a happy hardcore track sampling this called Constant Raving? Hey! <laughs> <laughs> especially knowing they've worked so hard to get here. From Scotland at number 29, Rum Rig with the excellent, wonderful... It's always great to introduce a band on the show when it's their first time, says Franklin, off-camera again, as we look at a whammy bar being interfered with, especially when they've worked so hard to get here. He's talking about Run Rig and Wonderful. Formed in the Isle of Skye and Glasgow in 1973, when the accordionist Blair Douglas's mam needed a band at short notice for a North Ooston Burn Array Association dance in Glasgow and linked her son up with the McDonald brothers, Callum and Rore, the Run Rig Dance Band spent the first five years of their career tearing up the dance halls of the west coast of Scotland with their rocky take on the traditional music of the Highlands and Islands. 
1978, they put out their first LP, Play Gaelic, an entirely Gaelic album, apart from the title, which caused no end of mither with the record label, but caught the mood of much of the country at the peak of the Scottish devolution wave, and the band suddenly became a very big deal north of Hadrian's Wall. It wouldn't be until 1982 that they put out their first single, a cover of the 18th century folk standard Loch Lomond, and it got to number 86 in the UK chart in the first week of 1983. Although they failed to crack the charts on two separate occasions in 1984, they spent the rest of the decade consolidating their position as a hugely popular independent band in Scotland. And when they signed a deal with Chrysalis in 1988, they started to gain a following on the continent. And they closed out the decade with their 6LP Searchlight, entering the album chart at number 11 in October of 1989. In 1991, their next LP, The Big Wheel, smashed into the charts at number four. They played a gig to 50,000 people reasonably close to the bonnie bonnie banks of Loch Lomond. And they eventually breached the top 40 when the Hot Hammer EP got to number 25 in September of that year. This single, the follow-up to Flower of the West, which got to number 43 in November of 1991, is the lead-off cut from their 8th LP, Amazing Things, which comes out a week tomorrow. And it's a new entry this week at number 29. And here they are in the Elstree studio, making their studio debut on top of the Pops. And yes, chaps, the music industry may be in crisis at the moment with a drop in record sales, but here's the upside. Bands with a dedicated fan base suddenly having the clout to get their faves into the charts. <sighs> what is there to say about Wonderful by Runrig? Seriously, help, help me. <laughs> well, here's the thing, right? I found Mark Franklin's introduction incredibly patronising mm. when he says, right, so he says, it's always great to introduce a band on the show when it's their first time, especially knowing they've worked so hard to get here. Mm. Hang on a minute, right? Run Rig, by this point, had had two gold albums and two silver albums and were a massive live act in Scotland. Yeah. yeah. I guarantee you, I don't know if any members of Run Rig have ever written their memoirs but if they have you will not find any member of Runrig saying that appearing on top of the pops in 1993 was a highlight of their career mm. no fucking way no. right but yeah they are having their clanad moment you know clanad mm. were massive in ireland and then they finally had a hit in the uk with the theme from harry's game mm. um, not quite on the same level but yeah they're a band whose appeal is very regional or national i should mm. say and that's fine and top of the pops is in their context it, it's it's weird seeing them yeah. seeing them on there at all yeah. but for franklin to imply oh this this plucky little band uh, isn't yeah. it great you know we're, we're doing them a favor no 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 oh, it is his context though to be fair isn't it mark franklin was found in his cradle underneath one of the stages and uh, <laughs> just you know raised by the tea lady and you know, it's, uh, it's all he knows it's all he knows yeah a couple of years before this they had played to fifty thousand people in Ballock country park so yeah they didn't they didn't need this and they no. don't need me to be snarky about them either um yeah it's a different sphere isn't it? yeah. it's a different plane of existence that um you know a lot of bands um occupy there are there are bands who have really good careers that don't interact very much with you know occasionally they'll kind of merge with the mainstream and then they'll uh, you don't hear of them again mm. but that doesn't mean that they 
ceased to exist. Yeah. I mean, even people in the actual music biz didn't know anything about them. There was an oral history about Red Wedge in Mojo, the Red Wedge tour of 1986, and they were added on the bill during the Scottish leg, and Tom Robinson said... Run Rig turned up at Edinburgh Playhouse and most of us didn't have a clue who they were. Then they went out on stage and the whole place went apeshit. Amazing. We were all standing at the side saying, who are these guys? <laughs> and Donny Munro, the lead singer, said, it was unusual for us back then to be suddenly thrust amongst all these top chart acts, but we were really delighted to be able to do the show. We did a song called Dance Called America because it was about forced emigration from Scotland and feudalism and it related to the sense of loss of community that we were experiencing under Thatcherism. So, yeah, they deserve their spot there. Yeah. I mean, Simon, as, as a proud, woad-smeared Celt, you've, you know, <laughs> you've spoken of your love for big country back yeah. in the day. And Rumrig's always been depicted as the Lefroig to big country's bells and teachers. So <laughs> did you ever dabble? No, um, and I don't really see the comparison apart from the fucking tartan shirt they shared one member did they 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 did share a member with yeah there was uh, there's been uh, 12 members of of run rig i think across 45 years but we're not talking about sort of um, imperial face big country are we (laughs) (laughs) no i i i couldn't tell you actually i just know that there's somebody somebody was in both of them fair enough but no i Mm. i can't really just from from this song yeah sure they're wearing tartan or check shirts but that's about they 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 look terrible don't i I mean we've got to get into this okay so what it is so they've got leather jackets and work trousers on they've got work trousers and work shoes it's like they've just they've just come from the office and they've had to throw on leather jackets to go on top of the pot and they're not even the right kind of pleated trousers are they they're not the david stubbs ones they're not semiotic trousers are they are they diegetic trousers though (laughs) (laughs) and they've got those really bad early 90s shirts under leather jackets so they all look like a biker gang who only shop at cna (laughs) well one of them's got the biker jacket but the other it's a blues on which is just never good it's like jimmy nail in spender or something it's oh fuck me (laughs) mullets as well some serious mulletage going on yeah and they look so old i mean the main guy donny monroe i looked it up and he's 39 when this is yeah. recorded he looks every day of that and you can probably add another 15 on top i mean fucking he's hell. the kind of 39 that people used to be in the 50s yes yeah. yes <laughs> i didn't watch this episode when it originally came out so when i realized that run rig on it i was like oh i'm gonna find out what this band are all about you know like crass because you know you'd see crass in the late 70s on the walls everywhere and yeah. you never heard them you just yeah. thought oh God, what what must they be like? And it wasn't until like the turn of the century that I started listening to Crass. I thought, oh fucking hell, this is all right. But I, I can't say the same for Run Rig. I, I don't know what I was expecting. Probably a musical version of McGlashan out of Absolutely. But you know what we get here is a melange of mid eighties windy Celticness and incidental music from an episode of Taggart, don't we? Yeah, like the Adventures or the Silences or something like that. Mm. The thing with it is. I don't believe, and this is from my own superficial skim through what Runrig are about, that this is representative of them as a band. No. It happens without anything happening. Mm. There's all one chord for ages at the start and not even a melody to speak of. No. You know? And they play their instruments like their display models um, and they're trying to play really softly trying them out and they'll be handing them back to the shop assistant any second now do you know what I mean yeah. hey, at least they're not doing smoke on the water though <laughs> give them that or stairway yeah. to heaven um, yeah there's kind of the vague atmosphere of rock about it but there's no emphasis on anything in particular 
and there isn't really a riff and it's not in any particular key and there isn't really a hook Uh, but other than that it's it's great (laughs) yeah (laughs) sounds vaguely christian doesn't it it's very yeah yeah sorry but it does i think their earlier material would be more spirited and maybe more roots based than than this but this yeah it it doesn't even have a chorus it's just got a title that's repeated so wonderful too wonderful so wonderful Mm. too wonderful it's oh come on guys so it's it's kind of surprising that of their entire catalog this is the one that gets into the charts but Mm. you know what what can you do yeah i don't know what that says about people who buy records really I mean, it's you know, honestly so. because because Run Rig were, were often name dropped as oh well you th- you think you know about Scottish rock well wait till you hear Run Rig you know yeah so here we are hearing Run Rig and all I can say is it's just as well that the Jesus and Mary Chain and Mogwai and the Associates <laughs> and Franz Ferdinand and Orange Juice and Bell and Sebastian and all those other bands exist so that we don't mm. have to judge the rock of Scotland on this one song and this one performance yeah it's it's very much the sound of middle age scotland isn't it this but we get a proper look at the main stage for the first time and oh we can see where the bbc's chucked the money yeah it's a properly wide stage flanked by metallic stairs and balconies to the side with a huge bank of scaffolding at the back and the band have decorated that with a massive banner which depicts the cover of their new lp which is a photo of the hugh mcdarmid memorial created by the artist jake harvey so there is that yeah hugh mcdarmid was a poet and one of the founders of the National Party of Scotland, I discovered. Right. So, yeah, a learning experience. Yeah. No disrespect to them. who They've had a, an incredible career mm. and made a lot of people very happy, but they're not a Top of the Pops band, and this is not a no. Top of the Pops song, and uh, it's not barely even a song, mm, I think. Yeah. So, the following week, Wonderful dropped 14 places to number 43. The downside to having a hardcore fan base that buy a shit on week one with no one else there to pick up the slack and a very chilling important to the very near future but by the end of the month the LP entered the chart at number two held off the summit of Ben Chartis by their (laughs) greatest hits by Hot Chocolate the follow-up The Greatest Flame got to number 35 in May but they go on to score six more top 40 hits throughout the 90s and even got to number nine in November of 2007 when they linked up with the Tartan Army for a revamp of Loch Lomond. In 1997, their lead singer, Donnie Munro, who had already served as the rector of the University of Edinburgh at this very moment, left the band in order to run at the general election as the Labour candidate for Ross, Sky and Inverness West, but lost to Charles Kennedy, and the band would put out six more studio LPs and five live LPs before splitting up in 2018. Oh, and Run Rig was a system of arable land tenure from late medieval times where strips of farmland were rotated amongst villages on a yearly basis so no one could permanently bagsy the most fertile land. Dig it, kids! Well then, pop craze youngsters, I feel that now is as good a time as any to shut the lid on this part of Chart Music 73, but fear not, we'll be back tomorrow for the final furlong of this episode. So, 
on behalf of Sarah B and Simon Price, this is Al Needham advising you to sit tight, listen keenly, and stay pop crazed. <laughs> Chart music. Calling all pop craze youngsters. You asked for it. We were offered it. So we said, all right then, fuck it, why not? Saturday, January the 13th, 2024. Birmingham Town Hall. Chart music live all day. Yes, pop craze youngsters. Short music is getting on down to Benny Tan with the power trio of Simon Price, Neil Kulkarnay and Al Needham for a full day of short music ramble. We commence with the return of Here Comes Quizum, the short music pub quiz. And then, a three-hour live episode of short music. And then... We round off the evening with a chart music disco where we dance the night away to the white hot sounds of Joy Sarney and Two Man Sound. It do be the complete chart music experience, Miss Diane, and can be yours for a mere £15. So, see that internet, mash bit.ly slash cm24. That's bit.ly slash cm24. Lay your money down and be prepared to be pop crazed all day long in beautiful downtown Birmingham. Hey, piss troll, we're coming for you. (laughs) 